0: let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. After two years of recognizing successful songs in movies, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was ready to make the best song category official. Well, sort of. The winners of the award for the best song written for films released in 1936 would not receive paper certificates, but rather gold plaques. An upgrade for sure, but still not the full-fledged acceptance songwriters deserved. They surely wanted the statuette that was given to winners in just about every other category. That eight-and-a-half-inch gold statuette was given the nickname Oscar for the first time at the 1937 ceremony. There was no nickname given to those gold plaques, which was also being given to the first winners of the Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress categories that year. By this time, musicals were showing in pretty much every movie house in the United States. Once the movie studios realized that songs they put into movies were becoming popular with the public, they decided to create their own publishing companies, took the copyrights for the songs used in many of their films, and made a mint by selling the songs on records and on sheet music. Also, for the first time in the 1936 awards year, the Academy finally used the word song to describe the achievement in the best song category, instead of just music and lyrics. Also, the list of nominations was expanded to five instead of three, a decision made for just about every other category. Ten nominees would be the major exception for the Best Picture Award. Even though the nominations were growing to five, songwriters were still asked to only submit the names of three songs, one of which was their own. Surely this made counting votes a little worrisome, especially if there would be ties. And it turned out that the first year of five nominees created a tie for the Best Song Award nominees as six songs made the final cut and all but one of the songs were written by first-time nominees. Let's go ahead and start our listen to the nominated songs, but first I want to warn you that there will be lots of plot points revealed during the discussion of the films. The first song features the only previously nominated songwriters on the list, and that would be Jerome Kern and Dorothy Fields for The Way You Look Tonight from the film Swing Time. And it's our fifth song on this podcast featuring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Swing Time was actually Fred and Ginger's sixth film together, having starred in Follow the Fleet seven months before Swing Time. Follow the Fleet has some original songs written for it by Irving Berlin, including the much-celebrated Let's Face the Music and Dance. Astaire's vocal performance of it lasts a little more than two minutes, followed by a three-minute dance with Ginger in one take. Now, Why didn't any of Berlin's songs get nominated? Your guess is as good as mine. And even though Follow the Fleet was a popular film, perhaps the limit of only three songs for nomination left Berlin out in the cold this year. Plus, there was a limit of only one song nomination per songwriter at the time. So back to The Way You Look Tonight and its songwriting duo of Jerome Kern and Dorothy Fields. As you learned in the previous episode, they had never met while working on 1935's Roberta, but they met in the interim and we're ready to put another classic song into another film starring Astaire and Rogers. But unlike all the previous Oscar-nominated songs they've introduced, The Way You Look Tonight is not written for an elaborate dance number. I should give you a little backstory about the plot before we get into the song. Fred is a dancer named Lucky who was forced to go to New York City to raise money to convince his fiance's father that he's worthy of her hand. While there, he meets a dance teacher named Penny, played by Ginger Rogers, and the two are set up for a major dance audition. Lucky misses the audition, and Penny refuses his apologies for a week. Finally, Lucky gets into her hotel room and offers a sincere apology. She doesn't accept it, and it goes into her bedroom to dress for an evening on the town. While she prepares to wash her hair, Lucky sits at the piano and begins to sing The Way You Look Tonight. Penny hears Lucky singing and, in the middle of her shampooing, walks out to the living room to watch Lucky at the piano. It's funny that Lucky is singing about Penny being so beautiful when she's not really at her best.
1: Someday. And the world is cold. I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way
2: you look
1: tonight. Oh, but your love,
2: will
1: be with your smile so warm and your cheeks so soft. There is nothing for me but to love you Just the way you look tonight With each word your tenderness grows Tearing my fear
2: apart
1: And that love that wrinkles your nose Touches my foolish heart Lovely Never, never change Keep that breathless charm Won't you please arrange it Cause I love you Just the way The way you look
0: tonight. Lucky doesn't see Penny until the end of the song, when she also realizes that she has shampoo in her hair. She runs into the bathroom and the scene transitions to two of them slow dancing at a club where a band leader named Ricardo Romero sings a brief version of The Way You Look Tonight while looking lovingly at Penny.
3: I love you.
0: has said she was so in love with Kern's melody when he played it for her that she cried. The release absolutely killed me, she said. I couldn't stop. It was so beautiful. The lyrics feel more conversational than most love songs. It feels like Lucky wants to speak these words to Penny, but she's really going to feel the emotion when it's attached to music. Ricardo is also in love with Penny, having asked her to marry him. She finally agrees to do it after learning that Lucky has an impending marriage awaiting him. Before they potentially say goodbye, Lucky sings Never Gonna Dance after they part, but after he sings, the two dance to The Way You Look Tonight before the melody switches to Never Gonna Dance Again for the majority of the scene. And to close out the film, naturally, Penny and Lucky agree to marry, and Penny sings The Way You Look Tonight to Lucky as they look out on the New York skyline. There were so many songs to choose from for Fields and Kern as their Oscar submission in Swing Time that we probably wouldn't have been upset if they chose Never Gonna Dance or A Fine Romance, which the two sing at a cabin in the woods. Penny sings that song after Lucky rebuffs Penny Advances. Then after Lucky decides to pursue Penny, he sings A Fine Romance to her when she rebuffs him. It's a great collaboration between Kern and Fields, blending melody and lyric, to make both equally as memorable as The Way You Look Tonight. But I would imagine Fields' tearful reaction to Kern's melody for The Way You Look Tonight helped steer them toward that love song. This was Kern's second big assignment of 1936. He was also making sure his score for the film adaptation of Showboat adequately transferred to the silver screen. He didn't need to worry. Showboat stands as one of the best film musical adaptations and made a star of Paul Robeson, who opened the film with the iconic Old Man River. The next Oscar-nominated song comes from the film Susie, which starred blonde bombshell Jean Harlow as a failed actress who gets involved with and marries two men in the film. The first one is an Irish engineer named Terry, played by French Tone, who helps Susie in a desperate hour of need. She returns the favor with a winning bet at the horse track, and the two marry shortly thereafter. Just as the opening shots of World War I are fired, Terry is assumed dead, and Susie runs off to Paris. There, she gets a job at a cabaret where a star French pilot named Andre comes in with his friends. She sings the song, Did I Remember?, which is briefly overshadowed by Andre's loud antics and dismissal of Susie's performance. The lyrics by Harold Adamson give off a very romantic vibe, though not in the context that Susie is singing it. She gets more agitated by Andre's ignorance of her performance that she sings such lines as, Did I Remember to Tell You I Adore You? with a very harsh tone. But Andre did hear the song, and he proves it with a comic performance of Did I Remember?
2: The night was filled sweet
3: surrender I had a million to say that brought a cannon with him, he? he could have made some real noise. I'll go tell him to pipe down. Oh, no, no, no. It's Andre Charville, the famous aviator. He shot down 14 planes. Well, let's stick with it, Puff. The night was filled with sweet surrender I had a million things That's a pretty girl, the one who's singing.
2: That's
1: what she looked like, Blonde or brunette? Blonde. The band, the band was night was
2: sin. young Next, but in the enter. right place.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and tell me, darling, by the way. Don't let me kid you, Susan. Patrick around. She's right in the back of you. Oh, no, sorry, Did Ralph. I my interview with my drink
1: I'll <laughs> <the drinking.
2: laughs> tell, <laughs>
3: tell you guys. that I, I am for you. I heard her first. And, and
2: I oh, am fair, you. We're I'll
1: mention. you No, no, no. That's, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's it. Tails.
2: Is she very Did pretty?
1: I said so. Take another look.
2: Ooh, la 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 la.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And just
2: how mad about you? You Say she was a
1: blonde. Yes, yes. For blondes, I always use gold. Gold,
3: coming up. You
2: (laughs) were in my arms, (laughs) and that was all I knew. We were alone. We got to be a good sport about it. What did I say? She doesn't sing
1: all the time, does she? You. Hey.
2: Did
3: I? adore
2: you, and pray forever more you are mine.
1: Charming, charming. How do you know? You didn't hear it. Menzel, I assure you, I heard every word. Let me convince you. Sit down. Gentlemen, play it again. You be the audience. <laughs> Did I remember to, uh, to tell you your delight? You're everything I want you to be. Your eyes are lovely and far beyond comparing, especially when they're glaring at me. (laughs) I can't make up words to say how swell you are, but I can tell you are. I know so well you are. I started falling the moment that I saw you. Believe me I adore
3: you
0: Gene <laughs> Harlow was dubbed by Virginia Verrill who had dubbed Harlow singing in the 1935 film Reckless This is our first Oscar nominated song that is not sung by the on-screen actor but it definitely won't be the last Verrill n- never got on-screen credit for dubbing her voice for Harlow or other actors And that's pretty much the way it remained when she left Hollywood to become a full-time homemaker in 1942. Not to give anything away, but this won't be the last time I mention Virginia Verrill on this podcast. Even though Susie is not a musical, the performance of Did I Remember does not feel jarring to audiences because the performance takes place in a cabaret where it's natural to hear someone singing. But the song gets a reprise later in the film while Andre is off fighting in the war. Susie, stuck at home with Andre's father, begins playing the song on the piano, and finally the lyrics take on the romantic intent.
3: you and just how mad about you I've grown. You were in my arms and that
0: Walter Donaldson, the composer of the music for Did I Remember?, had a connection to the film, as he had served in World War I and also entertained the troops with his own compositions. When he returned to the United States, he worked with Irving Berlin's publishing company, learning all that he could so that he would be able to start his own song publishing company in 1928. Some of Donaldson's biggest hits before moving to Hollywood were done in collaboration with lyricist Gus Kahn, including "Making Whoopee. This will be Donaldson's first and only Oscar nomination, never getting the opportunity to score a gig on a high-profile film that could give him another hit Hollywood song. The third nominated song comes from the film Born to Dance, and it's called I've Got You Under My Skin. Chances are you have heard this song, but most likely not the way it's sung in the film. The movie focuses on a woman named Nora Page, played by Eleanor Powell, who is determined to become a star on the Broadway stage. She comes to New York and meets a sailor named Ted Barker, who is on shore leave for a night. Ted is played by James Stewart, who was 27 years old when Born to Dance was made, and this is the only time you'll ever hear James Stewart in a full-fledged musical. He doesn't sing I've Got You Under My Skin, but he does sing a lively group number called Hey Babe Hey and the love song You'd Be So Easy to Love. Stewart's future as a singer and dancer were quickly squashed by critics, including one from Variety who called his musical stylings, quote, rather painful, end quote. Ted and Nora fall in love quickly early in the film, but there is competition for Ted's affections. Broadway star Lucy James, played by Virginia Bruce, meets Ted and latches on to him after he rescues her dog from drowning. It's best to see the film to understand the circumstances involving that. But Ted reluctantly decides to pursue a relationship with Lucy after mistakenly thinking that Nora is married. Ted still carries a torch for Nora, and Lucy seems to know it. While sitting out on her balcony with Ted, Lucy sings, I've Got You Under My Skin, to show how much she has grown to love Ted.
2: Deep in my heart You're really A part of me I've God Should I try to resist When, dying I know so well I've got you under my skin I'd sacrifice anything, come what might For the sake of having you near In spite of a war and repeat.
0: only two and a half minutes long and we can only assume that the song is sh- enough to show Ted that he should stay with Lucy. It's the shortest of the eight songs written by Cole Porter for the film marking his first foray into writing for film. By the time Cole Porter put down words and music for I've Got You Under My Skin he was already regarded as the toast of Broadway having composed the score for the smash musical Anything Goes in 1934. You might remember that he had written songs for the Broadway musical The Gay Divorce, which was retitled The Gay Divorcee for film, and featured Porter's song Night and Day. As I mentioned earlier, each songwriter is allowed to list only one of their songs in their list of three nomination suggestions to the Academy. In terms of Academy-worthy songs, I've Got You Under My Skin was the only tune in Born to Dance that fit the bill. The main love song, You'd Be So Easy to Love, which James Stewart sang in a big scene in Central Park with Eleanor Powell, was composed by Porter for Anything Goes a couple of years earlier, but not used. So Porter probably felt that it was best to play by the rules and submit a song that he actually wrote for the movie. Luckily, it worked. All right, so let's move on to the fourth song. It's called A Melody from the Sky. Like Did I Remember, this is a song from another non-musical film called The Trail of the Lonesome Pine. It's a very important film in the history of motion pictures, as it's one of the first to be fully filmed using the relatively new Technicolor film stock. A few others had used Technicolor, but they were all done on studio sets. The Trail of the Lonesome Pine shows us some magnificent vistas in the California mountains, where it was filmed, and makes the somewhat shaky plot forgivable. Fred McMurray was starring alongside Sylvia Sidney and Henry Fonda, In a love triangle set in the Kentucky Mountains. McMurray's character, Jack, comes to the mountains to build a railroad through land owned by two feuding families. Jack manages to get the railroad construction started while also falling in love with Sidney's character, June. The problem is that June is set to marry her cousin, Dave, played by Henry Fonda. Yes, June and Dave are cousins, and they're getting married. It was a much different time. Though Fred McMurray was known as a reliable singer, he's not the one who sings a melody from the sky. That duty goes to Tater, the local wanderer who sings in almost every scene he's in. He sings the Oscar-nominated song just after a scene in which June and Dave grow closer romantically and begin plans for a wedding. Though Tater is not in that scene, his song performance in the next scene, as he's walking alongside a picturesque lake, carries on the romantic tone. At the end of the song, he arrives at Dave's home and a lovesick Dave whistles the melody at the end. The actor performing the song is Fuzzy Knight, who is making a pretty good career as the comic sidekick, especially in westerns. He appeared in 12 films released in 1936, six of which were westerns. In the film, it's Henry Fonda who does the whistling to the tune written by Louise Alter at the end of this very short song. The lyrics by Sidney Mitchell are reminiscent of the 1934 song Love in Bloom, inquiring if nature plays a role in creating the love between two people. The song is very, very short, just 75 seconds long. So far, that makes it the shortest Oscar-nominated song. A Melody from the Sky is performed only once in the film, while the other song written by Alter and Mitchell called Twilight on the Trail is sung three times, once very dramatically during a character's funeral. It's not known if Alter and Mitchell nominated Twilight on the Trail as their song choice, given its stronger relevance to the film, and others decided to nominate the more romantic A Melody from the Sky, or if there was pressure for Alter and Mitchell to submit A Melody from the Sky to help sell records if it got an Oscar nomination. Both songs from the film fared well in record sales, but Twilight on the Trail turned out to be the bigger hit and had a lot of cover versions performed over the years. The fact that Twilight on the Trail is much longer made it more appealing. Bing Crosby was one of those cover artists, putting his own spin on the Cowboy song the same year as the film premiered. That pitted his own record against Fuzzy Knight's version, and it was, perhaps not surprisingly, Crosby's version that resonated the most. President Franklin Roosevelt proclaimed Bing's song as one of his all-time favorites, and it became a part of the official collection at the Roosevelt Library. Bing Crosby had a song of his own that made the Oscar cut, and it's the fifth nominated song of 1936, called pennies from heaven sung in the film of the same name the film toes the line between drama and comedy starting out grim as crosby's prison inmate promises a man about to be executed that he'll give a letter to the family of the man he killed bing who plays a singing drifter named larry Poole, agrees to give the family the note when he's released from prison this negatively affects larry's plans after prison which included going to Venice, Italy, to play his lute and make a fortune as a singer. He gives the note to the family which has just lost their house. Though the Great Depression was easing up in the mid-1930s, it was still very common for families to not be able to afford housing, and this family seems to hop from place to place avoiding rent payments. The family consists of just an old man and a young girl named Patsy. Larry meets Patsy at a carnival, and Patsy immediately gets attached to him, especially after he sings a song called So Do I. The man who was executed wanted to make amends to the family, so he bequeathed them his broken-down house in New Jersey. On the first night, Patsy is so scared of the sounds of the storm outside that she's unable to sleep. Larry tucks her in on a sofa by the fire and sings pennies from heaven to calm her. The lyrics tell us that storms are a good thing because the clouds can bring us a little fortune. And if you're going to have someone sing you to sleep, it might as well be Bing Crosby.
4: You know, Sarge, a long time ago, about a million years B.C., the best things in life, absolutely free. But no one appreciated a sky that was always blue. And no one congratulated a moon that was always new. So it was planned that they would vanish now and then. And you must pay before you get them back again. That's what storms were made for. And you shouldn't be afraid for oh. time. It rains, it rains, and it's from heaven. Don't you know each cloud contains, and from heaven? You'll find your fortune falling. All over town. Be sure that your umbrella is upside down. Trade them for a package of sunshine and flowers. If you want the things you love, you must have shot. So when you hear it thunder, don't run under a tree. There'll be pennies from heaven for you.
0: Bing reprises the song very briefly near the end of the film when he dresses up as a clown at a carnival show held at the orphanage where Patsy has been put. As a way to convince her to come out of her room, he sings Penny from Heaven, So Do I, and a cute song for the kids called One, Two, Buckle Your Shoe. The song Penny's from Heaven was written by Arthur Johnston and Johnny Burke. Johnston had a good association with Bing Crosby by 1936, writing songs for two of his 1933 movies but not getting the chance to write the Oscar-nominated Love and Bloom from 1934. But when it came time for songs to be written for one of Crosby's films in 1936, Arthur Johnston was ready to work. Johnston had helped Irving Berlin write songs while Berlin was working on Broadway in the early 1900s, then served as an arranger for various studio music departments when sound entered the motion picture industry. As for Johnny Burke, his career also started with work under Irving Berlin, writing songs for nightclub bands across the country. But when you look at the Hollywood career of Johnny Burke, it's very closely connected to Bing Crosby. Pennies from Heaven was the first time Burke wrote songs for Crosby, and it was Burke's first time getting official credit for writing songs for the movies. The easygoing, inoffensive, and airy lyrics would fit Crosby's style in Pennies from Heaven. It was the first of more than 20 films in which Burke wrote songs for Bing Crosby, and Crosby said that, quote, One of the best things that's happened to me is a 145 pound Irish leprechaun named Johnny Burke. Director Norman MacLeod was so in love with the song that he asked Bing to sing it live, with an orchestra playing off screen. After audiences heard Bing sing Burke's optimistic words and Johnston's accessible melody, they dashed to music stores to pick up their own copies. It quickly topped the music charts and stayed there for 10 weeks, becoming one of the best-selling records in music history. Only Fred Astaire's Cheek to Cheek had lasted that long in number one, so a rivalry between the two singers was already brewing. But neither Astaire nor Crosby ever created such a feud. It was all cooked up by the media, and possibly by the studios, to sell movie tickets and vinyl records. The film Pennies from Heaven is also notable for the appearance of famed trumpet player and bandleader Louis Armstrong, who is appearing in his fourth movie and his first not playing himself. While he does sing and play the trumpet in the movie, he's playing the role of Henry, a musician who helps Bing with the opening of a cafe to raise money. Yes, there's a whole plot involving turning the dead inmate's house into a chicken dinner restaurant that unfortunately turns south for everyone. The sixth and final nominee for the Best Song Oscar in 1936 is When Did You Leave Heaven from the movie Sing, Baby, Sing. Despite the title, there isn't much singing in the film, and therefore it would be tough to call this a musical. That gives us three films in the category this year that feature nominated songs, not from musicals. It signals a shift by the studios to produce songs inside non-musical films to help increase profits and bring more exposure to their movie stars. A record with Bing Crosby's face on it was ubiquitous in a record store in 1936, but other stars could get a boost if they perform a song that sells thousands of copies. Sing Baby Sing has four songs written by three different writing teams, and our nominated song was written by Richard Whiting and Walter Bullock, and is sung during the film's finale. You might remember the name Richard Whiting as the composer of the Shirley Temple song On the Good Ship Lollipop from 1934. In the two years since, Whiting was still enjoying the success of writing that song, even though it did not get an Oscar nomination. In addition to contributing When Did You Leave Heaven for Sing Baby Sing in 1936, Whiting was cajoled to write a song the same year that would help replace some of the Cole Porter songs for the movie adaptation of Anything Goes. That song, Sailor Beware, is largely forgettable outside of the film, though star Bing Crosby did try to make a hit when he recorded it for another album. Whiting teamed up with Ralph Ranger to write two songs for the Big Broadcast of 1936, which was not as big a hit as the previous Big Broadcast films. So it was not a difficult task for Whiting to choose When Did You Leave Heaven as his song submission for the 1936 Academy Awards. Walter Bullock's lyrics for When Did You Leave Heaven were the first he wrote for a film, and it would not only give him an Oscar nomination, but make him a hot commodity. He wrote music for another film in that year, Follow Your Heart, and it generated another popular song, Magnolia's In the Moonlight. Bullock would write more than 20 songs for nearly a dozen films in the next four years. The Oscar nomination for When Did You Leave Heaven is what helped Bullock stay in demand in Hollywood, but he never attached himself to just one composer, which is what many lyricists were beginning to do. Sing Baby Sing should be described as a comedy, with Alice Faye starring as Joan Warren, a singer who's fired from her job at a nightclub to make way for a debutante who will bring in more guests. Jones' agent, Nicholas Alexander, played by Gregory Radoff before he would make a bigger name for himself in All About Eve, tries various schemes to get her hired by Mr. Brewster, an influential radio executive. After failing at one of the schemes, Alexander meets famous actor Bruce Faraday, who is going on a drinking binge after a long stint working in the movies. While getting drunk, he sees Joan singing in her last gig at the nightclub and falls for her. Various hijinks ensue, which cause Joan to be labeled a gold digger by the press for seemingly latching on to Faraday and his millions. Alexander devises a radio show to showcase Joan's singing talents, and in search for entertainers, Joan finds an electrician singing on the job. The electrician agrees to be a part of the show, and he sings When Did You Leave Heaven as the show's opening number
3: i used to dream about angels but then i never knew that i'd ever meet one and such a sweet one till i met you when did you Can you get back here if I kissed you?
0: That's Tony Martin singing the song. He was on his way to becoming a popular crooner, very much in the style of Bing Crosby, but his goal of becoming a full-fledged actor wasn't going to be helped by his brief appearance in Sing Baby Sing. He only appears to sing the song in the radio show and earlier in that scene for just a couple of minutes when Joan is trying to hire him. Even though the song doesn't tie back to the plot, it is memorable for its simplicity and effervescence. One of the most talked-about films of 1936 was The Great Ziegfeld, produced by MGM as an attempt to push the envelope of what a musical should look like on film. The film was trying to outdo Busby Berkeley in terms of the scope of the musical numbers, and in some ways it worked, though it turned out to be one of the most expensive movies to be produced at the time, and one of the longest at three hours. As a biography of Broadway impresario Florence Ziegfeld, The movie reportedly didn't replicate some of the production numbers that had appeared in Ziegfeld's shows of the time, but rather used the film medium to show what he could have done had he dipped his toe into film production. None of the songs in The Great Ziegfeld were eligible for Oscars, including the big dance number, A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody, which was written by Irving Berlin in 1919. And when the 10th Annual Academy Award Ceremony commenced on March 4, 1937, the 11 nominated songwriters were probably happy that The Great Ziegfeld was not competing in the Best Song category. By the end of the night, The Great Ziegfeld won three awards, including Best Picture. For the first time in our journey through this history of the Best Song Award, none of the films that featured the nominated songs were nominated for Best Picture. The Best Song Award was pitting Fred Astaire against Bing Crosby, Jerome Kern against Cole Porter. Based on record sales alone, it was easy to see that the competition was between The Way You Look Tonight and Pennies from Heaven to win Best Song. This time, it was Fred Astaire's hit that took the top prize. The Way You Look Tonight was voted by the Academy as the Best Song of 1936, making Dorothy Fields the first woman to win this award and just the third overall in Academy history. The song runs just two minutes, a far cry from the 12-minute and 13-minute songs that won the Oscars in years one and two of the award. We'll see if The Way You Look tonight manages to hold on to this record as the shortest Oscar-winning song. Kern and Fields received plaques for their awards that year, but each were able to replace them with the official Oscar statuette many years later, Fields in 1950 and Kern in 1959. The Way You Look tonight and Pennies from Heaven were quickly scooped up by popular singers of the time, eager to make a little money as well. Billie Holiday recorded both songs in late 1936, but she couldn't get her versions to the top of the music charts. Frank Sinatra and the band The Skyliners had some success with Pennies From Heaven, but it was the instrumental versions by Count Basie's orchestra and even Louis Armstrong about a decade later that kept the song going. And funny enough, Bing Crosby sang his own version of The Way You Look Tonight in 1936 as a duet with his wife, Dixie Lee. The Way You Look Tonight gave Fred Astaire another signature song just a year after Cheek to Cheek and another entry on the American Film Institute's list of the 100 best songs of the first 100 years of movies. It sits at number 43, not a bad place to sit when its performance is just Fred Astaire sitting at a piano. We're going to have two more songs from Fred Astaire and Bing Crosby on our next episode of the Best Song Podcast, featuring five nominees for the Academy Award for the Best Song of 1937. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode, and we'll do it again next time. The Best Song podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.